Good afternoon, everyone. <clears throat> yes, I, I couldn't resist the uh, talking about Thanksgiving on the weekend where everybody is talking about Thanksgiving. So I figured let's talk about Thanksgiving. And the place that I want to come to uh, in terms of the Torah uh, for a discussion point as relates to our Parsha in terms of Thanksgiving is to notice the contrast between Yaakov and Esau throughout their lifetimes. Um, even though we have one sentence towards the end of Yaakov's life where it sounds like he's not uh, giving thanks, you know, that's a little bit of a question. Uh, but uh, certainly before that point, uh, throughout uh, our parsha, next week's parsha, and the parsha after that, we do seem to find a theme where despite Yaakov confronted by many enemies and difficulties, being kicked out from his parents' home uh, in this week's parsha because of the fact that his brother Esav now hates him. Uh, he needs to then travel and deal with his uh, charlatan con man of a brother-in-law in a very <clears throat> wicked town of idolatry in Padan Aram in next week's parsha. He suffers through 20 years of machinations and manipulations by Lavan to try to use him. With all of that being said and done, Yaakov runs away from Lavan. And at the beginning of Parshas Vayishlach, he says to Hashem, I am diminished. I am made small from all the kindnesses and the wonderful things that you've done for me. Because when I came to this town in Padan Aram in Syria, I only had my staff. And now I have become two camps. And in addition, when Yaakov and Esav actually meet up, we see that Yaakov's point of view is that he has everything. Yeshli Kol. Esav is the one who says, I have a lot. So we have a kind of a contrast here of appreciation. Yaakov suffers terribly on many fronts for many decades. And yet his take is, I have everything. And God, you've done so much for me. You've done, you know, wonders for me. And I, I'm diminished from all the good that you have done for me. Whereas Esau's take is, wait a second, uh, Yaakov, who, you, you, this, all this stuff is yours? Esau is looking outward. He's looking at what other people have. He says, I have a lot, but it doesn't sound like he has enough. So the bottom line is it would seem to me that we do have a, a, a very good contrast here between appreciation and the notion that God is good to me versus I'm looking for more, I would like to get more, and I don't have enough. And therefore, I thought it's appropriate to talk about the concept of Thanksgiving in light of the other major theme that we're discussing today uh, in terms of Yaakov and Esav, which is that of irresponsible adults and children. I avoided putting in, in the title, including ourselves, how to handle ourselves, when we are being irresponsible, but yes, that, that's part of what we're discussing here today. And in light of that whole theme of responsibility versus irresponsibility, I think we can also understand how to become a person of thanksgiving. So let me begin with a few major questions on the Parsha. Many of us seem to labor under the illusion that Yitzchak and Rivka are not on the same page. And it's a, it's a pretty powerful illusion because we look at the story of the blessings between Yaakov and Esav and right off the bat, 
we're given the understanding that Yitzchak wants to bless Esav, and Rivka is staging a major coup by, by making sure that Yaakov gets in front of the line and gets the blessings instead of Esav. So it would very much seem like they're not communicating, they're not on the same page, and not only that, even take it a step further, Rivka is actually tricking Yitzchak. Okay, in addition to that, we have the famous sentence which says that Yitzchak loves Esav because there was game in his mouth, and there are different commentaries on how to understand that phrasing exactly. Either it means <coughs> that he Yitzchak loved Esav because Esav always supplied him with good food. Definitely, that is something that a, uh, a father appreciates, um, <laughs> good food from his children. Uh, so that's one explanation. And the other explanation is that, and this is Rashi's explanation, actually, is that Yitzchak loved Esav because Esav was manipulating Yitzchak and causing Yitzchak to think that Esav was actually a righteous character. And the way that Esav would ask specific halachic questions of meticulousness, it seemed to convey the idea to Yitzchak that Esav is really a careful, righteous son. So and not so much that there was game in his mouth, but that he was trapped, or he was the game. In other words, Yitzchak was the game, so to speak, in Esav's mouth, that Esav would use his mouth to kind of trick and trap Yitzchak and capture Yitzchak's thinking about his opinion of Esav. Okay. So regardless of that, we have the sentence, which says very clearly that Yitzchak loves Esav. And then it says, and Rivka loved Yaakov. So again, it sounds like they're really not on the same page. But I suggest that that really is an illusion, because if we look at everything about the relationship between Yitzchak and Rivka that we know in the sentences prior to that, it seems like they are very much in love, on the same page, working together. And why should we assume that all of that suddenly evaporates into thin air with no explanation, right? It's not like it says anywhere that Yitzchak and, and Rivka were having solemn bias problems. It doesn't say that, right? Like we don't know of discord and disharmony between them. So if the foundation of the relationship seems to be that of love, as the Torah says at the end of Parshas, Chaye Sarah, that Yitzchak brought uh, Rivka into his tent, and he loved her, and he was comforted after his mother, which even more than the fact that he was comforted after his mother, we have to take into account who Sarah was to Yitzchak, right? Sarah was obviously a very, very precious person in Yitzchak's eyes. Uh, according to the rabbis, Sarah herself only considered her life to really have begun after she gave birth to Yitzchak, but he used numerically the amount of years that Sarah was alive when Yitzchak was alive, which is 37 years, and that's the introduction to Chaye Sarah, that that was her life. So if that's the way Sarah feels, and we have no reason to assume that Yitzchak felt anything other than love for his mother, especially when we consider the fact that Sarah stepped in to make sure to kick out Yishmael so that the legacy and the inheritance of Avraham would belong exclusively to Yitzchak, there's really zero reason to believe that Yitzchak doesn't love Sarah. So if Yitzchak loves Sarah, and Yitzchak is comforted by taking his wife Rivka as some sort of a, an amelioration of the Sarah loss, that tells us a lot about how Yitzchak feels about Rivka. And then on top of that, 
he's davening for her that, and, and, and praying that they should be successful together in having children and they pray together. So why would we think that Yitzchak and Rivka could not have a harmonious and collaborative relationship? So based on all that, I would like to suggest that we need to look at the parsha differently. We need to look at the parsha that Yitzchak and Rivka have a tremendous working relationship and that everything that they're doing as pertains to Yaakov and Esav is the result of a unified approach, not one of disunity. And so with that in mind, let us now ask a few major questions. The blessing that Yitzchak wants to give Esav is seemingly an incredibly important blessing. I spoke about it on Wednesday uh, extensively. This is a, a very cosmic and important blessing that Yitzchak is bestowing upon his son. The fact that Yitzchak wants to give it to Esav is nothing less than astonishing, especially when we consider the fact of who Esav had become, which is a combination of an idolater, a murderer, etc., a robber, right? So that's very difficult, but also in light of the prophecy where the prophecy says, this is a major, major question. I really would like to deal with it head on today. It says that the older will serve the younger. <clears throat> that's what Hashem sends a message to Rivka when Rivka is bothered by her pregnancy. Hashem says, listen, you have two nations from in you, two monarchs that are going to separate and emerge from you, and the older will serve the younger. So clearly the one that's born first is going to serve the younger. So why is Yitzchak now going to give the blessing to the older? The older is supposed to serve the younger. And again, if you want to go with the notion that, uh, you know, Rivka never told Yitzchak about the prophecy, you're welcome to have it. I don't accept that. I don't think that's true in general about the prophecies of the Torah. Uh, one exception that we seem to have with that is that when Hashem told Avraham, that he was going to have a son, it seems like he did not share that with Sarah. But to assume that Avram didn't share with Sarah all the other prophecies of the land of Israel, which were said to him many times, or you know what's going to happen with their progeny in the future, being enslaved for 400 years, many, many others. I don't, I don't suggest to look at the Torah that way. Somebody else wants to, I guess that's another approach. So assuming that Yitzchak knows that the older is going to serve the younger, why does he intend to give the blessing to the older, not to mention, as we you know, said already, Esav is seemingly not a good guy. He's a wicked guy. So what is he doing? Okay, <clears throat> that's one major question. Another very interesting question that, you know, when you when you take the Torah seriously, as you know, my father always teaches, we have to listen very carefully to the words of the Torah. Just try to imagine yourself in this situation. Uh, let's, because everybody wants to believe they're the good person, let's make pretend for a moment that we're Yaakov. And our brother Esav walks in and he's exhausted. And he says, hey, give me some of that uh, red uh, lentil soup that you are going to, <clears throat> that you are going, that you are cooking there. Give me, give me some of that, that red, you know, soup. Uh, pour it down my throat. Okay, I'm pretty sure not one of us would think that the appropriate response <clears throat> is sell me your birthright. Maybe you'll say yes, maybe you'll say no, Maybe you'll say, maybe you'll say, okay, what are you offering? But to go, boom, you want a bowl of soup? Sell me your birthright? How do we explain the logical progression of that? How, how, what is the logic that somehow I'm hungry, give me soup, 
equal, yes, I want to sell you my birthright. Excellent point. That That's exactly what I had in mind. It just seems like so out of left field. That's the second question I would like to deal with. Not to mention the fact that Ace of the, you know, seemingly uh, easily goes along with that. And how does that occur? That's the second question. And then finally, how do we understand the way the Torah sets up the love between Yitzchak to Esav and Rivka to Yaakov? And even if you want to explain that somehow that's a collaborative joint effort on their part, what's it doing? How does it happen? So I'd like to begin to answer these three questions by, uh, just give me one second, everyone. I just want to see what Ergafil posted about Ravi Al-Gotzair. Uh, the younger is going to serve a lot. Okay, interesting. Okay, maybe there's a different way to explain that that the that the younger one is going to serve a lot. Okay, um, so that would mean that he's going to serve his older brother, but no. So then I'm so then it's still a question if he's going to serve a lot, especially if you understand to be Avodah Hashem, it would still be interesting. Why are you giving Ace of the bracha if? presuming you understand that the service is an important thing that he's doing, so give it to Yaakov. That should be Yitzchak's Havamin, it would seem. Okay, so I'd like to begin our explanation by pointing out what is also an extremely interesting thing to me. You know, I'm sure I'm not the first parent to think of this question. Um, sometimes we, we, we hear it in different ways. I know somebody once said this to me, you used to be so cute when you were younger. Right. There's an obvious love that we understand happens when a child is young. Uh, the, the Talmud speaks about, the Midrashim speak about, everybody delights in young children. The love that the Torah describes over here from Yitzchak to Esav and Rivka to Yaakov is after they've grown into men. We are not talking about the quote-unquote what psychologists refer to as the formative years. That is not the love that is being described out here in the Torah at all, because the Torah says in the sentence before the love, it says that the youth screw up. Esav was a man, man, ish, that knew hunting a man of the field. And Yaakov was a man of either naivete or complete hearted, however you want to understand the word tan, perfect, sitting in the tents. So that's the sentence preceding, and Yitzchak loved Esau because there was game in his mouth, and Rivka loved Yaakov. We're talking about the love of the parents to their adult men children. So that's interesting. Why is this an important element of the storyline? Clearly, it's not telling us what most of us think that, you know, Esau was special to Yitzchak and Yaakov was special to Rivka because, you know, that would start earlier. Right, that would start when they were younger. It's telling us something about how Yitzchak and Rivka decided to deal with their adult children. What is it telling us? And I believe that the answer is right off the bat, the Torah is telling us that we have to be very, very, very careful to validate our children to the best of our ability for the choices that they have made in their lives. Not so easy especially when we don't agree. And more than that, it seems that Yitzchak understands that, and uh, let, me say, let me say that differently, Yitzchak and Rivka understand 
that each child specifically needs the love that is being given by that parent more than they need the love of the other parent. That doesn't mean that each parent didn't love them, but they had a special need. That means Esav had a special need in his life choices as the Yodea Thayid in Ish Sadeh from his father. And Rivka had a special need of love for the, I'm sorry, Yaakov had a special need of love from Rivka for his choice of Ishtam Yoshevo Halim. And of course, there's much to be understood about what exactly are these life choices that the Torah is presenting us. So let's just explain a little bit, right? Very simply put, the Torah is telling us that Yaakov stayed in the tents. That means he was not a man of the world. He was not a man for outside and in the field. He was a man instead, either for study, like the, the rabbis say, whether it's the yeshivas that the rabbis tell us, or his own you know, learning, or his own process of study, whatever that is, right? And Esav was a person who was outside, out and about, a man of either town or field. Rashi actually learns with Esav that it seems to be a kind of a, um, uh, a lackadaisical life where he took an approach to, look, if I want to go hunting, I'll go hunting, you know, I'll kind of do what I need when I need it, as opposed to giving over to a specific uh, work and a specific, you know, plan for how to you know, get by in the world. That, that's the way Rashi seems to explain it. But either way, the Torah is telling us that the two nations that were destined to emerge from Rivka begin with the children. And that's literally the way it begins because we go in the Torah from birth to the fact that they grew up as these men. So that means the, what the Torah is telling us as a way of mapping out this prophecy of the older shall serve the younger, assuming that's the way we read it, is beginning with the understanding that these are their life choices. And the Torah is telling us that the job of parents is to be in the life decision of the children with them by expressing to them the love that you have for them. Now, it's very, very likely that Esau needs the love of his father because Esau definitely idolizes his father. He wants his father's approval. And Yitzchak is doing the best that he can to validate what Esav is choosing to do. That's not going to stop Yitzchak from giving Esav blessings, and it's not going to stop Yitzchak by uh, it's not going to stop Yitzchak instructing Esav, so to speak, through the blessings of the type of life that Esav should be responsible to lead. That's something that Yitzchak is also going to do. But along the way, what is he doing? He is validating Esau's life choice of being a man of the field and a man of hunting. And he's saying, I appreciate the, the game. I appreciate what, what you're doing. And Rivka loves Yaakov. And that also is an interesting um, choice that Yaakov makes because seemingly life is more than just about sitting in tents. <clears throat> and somehow they, Rivka being in that decision with Yaakov and accepting is, let's just say, not uh, doing more um, to develop himself other than to either sit and learn or sit in the tent is something that is definitely being validated by Rivka at that time as well. Now, even though it doesn't say specifically by Rivka that he, she loved Yaakov because he was sitting in tents, that's also uh, something interesting to note and to you know definitely do something with more another time. So, the next very important lesson is that here we have 
this whole idea that in the prophecy, the older is supposed to serve the younger. So we would think, well, as good parents, I guess we should bring that about, right? But the Torah's lesson here is no, you have to leave the dealing of the next generation to the next generation with how they are going to interact with each other. That means to say, you validate, you do the best that you can to help them you know, in their life decisions and in their choices for how they've self-identified themselves. Again, let me just make a disclaimer. I'm not saying that if it's evil and wicked that you need to validate that. It never says that Yitzchak validated Esav as an idolater. It never says that Yitzchak validated Esav as a murderer, right? We're talking about validating what he decided to do with his life, which was not inherently wicked. Not so clear what you know that is, but apparently it's a man of the world and a man of action and a man of <clears throat> who's you know trying to be involved in, in things uh, that is what Yitzchak is validating, in addition to also the fact that Yitzchak is validating Esav in the way that he's trying to care for his father Yitzchak. Okay, but the point is that we have to do that kind of work with our children. How they decide and how they choose to live with each other and to interact with each other and the deals, so to speak, that they strike with each other for how they are going to either partner and work together or actually disengage from one another, that is up to them to decide. So here is the amazing insight that Yaakov has. So now we have that Yitzhak and Rivka are collaborating together to trying to help their children in their maturation and in their adulthood grow into who they are trying to become. And they're leaving the next steps of how they're going to work with each other. Even though there's a prophecy that the older is supposed to serve the younger, they're leaving that to them. So the next step is that Esav comes in and he is the firstborn, right? We know that he was born first. The Torah tells that to us. And he says, I'm really hungry. Give me soup. Esav doesn't know how to go to the fridge. There is no fridge. Okay. He doesn't know how to get himself something to eat. Esav is a hunter. He prepares food for his father. What's he saying to Yaakov? Okay, I'm really tired. Really, I can't move. Uh, I'm, uh, like I can't, I just can't do anything. What's he saying to Yaakov? What he's really saying to Yaakov is, I don't want to handle everything I need in my life. For whatever reason that he's exhausted, for whatever reason that he's hungry and that he's fashmettered, right? That's Yiddish for he's like wasted. He's totally uh, gone. I want somebody else to take care of me. That's what Esau is saying. Okay, Yaakov, you take care of me. You do it, Yaakov. To which Yaakov says brilliantly, what you're really saying is that you're having a hard time handling yourself and your own life. You're definitely not gonna to want to step into major responsibility for others, what we call service. That's not something that you're gonna be interested in. It's in that moment that Yaakov has a, literally a lightning bolt flash, whether he thought about it before or not, I don't know, but it's a crystal clear moment in Yaakov Avinu's mind that Esav, being the responsible firstborn, as one who will take that responsibility, is not going to happen. And so because of that, it's not that Yaakov is saying, listen, let's trade the bowl of soup for your birthright. He's saying, listen, you want me to take care of you? Okay, I'll step into the responsibility role, which is the role of the Jewish people in the world.
That is the role. That is being the servant of Hashem. Okay, I'll do it. Fine. You don't want to do it yourself for yourself. No problem. I'll do it for you. And one of the major proofs that we know this to be the case is because when they do meet up years later, Yaakov says, listen, you can have all these gifts. It's all yours. And the rabbis even say that even after that meeting, when he gave him tons and tons of animals of different types, etc., he was doing that for months and months. Yaakov kept, you know, sending Asa of more gifts. Yaakov has no problem with that because that is what it means to be the firstborn. That is what it means to be the one responsible to carry out the mission that Hashem has for this world how we know that this is the place where Hashem's mission is being carried out in the world, that you should go to Wednesday's class for. But right now, what we're saying is that Yaakov understands that Esav does not want to do that, and Yaakov is completely willing to do that. Now, one of the very interesting things is that he actually makes Esav swear. Why does he make Esav swear? Because Yaakov knows that when it comes to the birthright, or it comes to really identity, it's not enough for a person to say, I want to make a transaction. They have to make a commitment to themselves as to who they are. So Yaakov asks Esau to swear that he is no longer going to be the person that truly is the firstborn, meaning the one with the responsibility. Instead, he is swearing that that is Yaakov's, and then he makes a transaction and actually sells the birthright to Yaakov. So the bottom line is, that it's very clear that what Esau wants is for Yaakov to actually be the one who has the responsibility. And that really comes out as the younger will be served by the older. Because the older, which is Esau, the way I'm reading the sentence, he actually ends up being the one to the, uh, Yaakov is the one, so to speak, that ends up being in charge, even though what's kind of happening is that he is allowing himself to be used for Asap. So now let's explain more about Yitzchak and Rivka, and then we'll come back and explain that, that, that phrase one more time of Biravya Avot Sa'ir more clearly. So it seems to me that what Yitzchak and Rivka are orchestrating when it comes to the blessings is giving an opportunity to both the children to step into the role of the birthright, which is really the firstborn responsibility. And that comes out, so to speak, in the blessings, meaning the one who gets the blessings is really the one who has to take responsibility for what happens in the world. So Yitzchak says, I'm gonna give this opportunity to Esau. And I would suggest that even if, let's say, Yitzchak ended up giving the blessings to Esau, he would have made sure that Esau was accepting the responsibility of that. It wouldn't be just like, okay, here are the blessings, and he goes on his way. He would verify it. But the point is, is that he gives Esau that opportunity by saying to him, listen, Esau, I want to give you blessings. Go prepare for me the game that you always make. And because you're willing to do something for me as a sign that you also want the blessings, right? because I'm asking you to give me the game, so to speak, so that I can cook the food for me, so that I can then uh, give you the blessings. That's a sign that Esau will be, in fact, stepping in to the role of the blessings. And that's really the major lesson of blessings in general, is that blessings are a responsibility, not just a gravy train. Right? Blessings are not only that we should benefit good things, but they become 
a responsibility to others. I just wanted to digress on this point for a minute because it's a really important point, and then we'll be able to wrap everything up. The Talmud says that there is no vessel that contains blessings except for harmony. That's a, the end statement of the Mishnayos and in, in the Talmud, in the, in, the, in the Mishnah. It says that there is no vessel that contains blessings except for shalom. That's the wording. What does that mean? It means that when God bestows blessing, the idea is that there should be good for everyone, not for the, so to speak, the person who's getting the blessing. But the person who gets the blessing is the person who's interested in the good for everyone. He becomes the conductor or the distributor of blessings to all people. So the one who really embodies the concept of shalom is the one to really get the blessings, which is ultimately, of course, why Yaakov ends up with the blessings, because he is happy that Esav should have good things from him. He has no problem with that. He wants that. He wants to make sure that everybody has good things. He's not looking for the blessings for himself. And in fact, that's where blessing goes. That's, the, that's what we just said. The Mishnah says that the blessing is only contained in the vessel of Shalom. And so therefore, that's why he ends up with the blessings. But Yitzchak is giving Esav that opportunity. But unfortunately, um, Esav is really not up to that responsibility, as indicated by the fact that he sold the responsibility of service. He sold the responsibility of being a person to work for others. And so therefore, he really is not stepping into that role, which Rivka also knows. And so Rivka gives Yaakov the opportunity to fully step into that role, which is something that Yaakov is not so comfortable doing, even though he was willing to take the responsibility from, from Asa by becoming the servant, he wasn't ready to presume that he should therefore also get the good, also get the blessings that Yitzchak is about to bestow. But that too is a test for Yaakov. And Yitzchak, uh, sorry, and Rivka gives Yaakov that test. And at the end of the day, this is an orchestration by both Yitzchak and Rivka. And the real question is, which son is going to accomplish their mission? Because what we need is for one son to step up and take full responsibility for the service, full responsibility for the blessings, in a sense, on behalf of both of them. So I therefore suggest that the role of Yaakov and the role of Esav were always meant to be distinct roles, and they were meant to work out a partnership together. The way that the partnership should have meant to work out together would be that Esav would serve Yaakov. That doesn't mean that Esav would serve Yaakov in the sense that Esav would be downtrodden, that Esav would be his slave. It means that the more intellectual, spiritual pursuits of which Yaakov was interested in accomplishing would really have to be the guiding force of the Yaakov and Esav partnership. So a very simple way to say this is we all have the competing um, forces within us of our intellect and our physicality, and we need that our physical should serve our intellect, not the opposite, right? Because when our minds are just trying to serve our desires and our temptations, we're becoming a lesser human being, a more animalistic. When our physical cravings and temptations are serving our intellect, so then we're able to learn what's good for us physically, what to enjoy physically, and pursue what's most important, which are our you know, intellectual and spiritual pursuits. So that was always the intention. The problem is, is that that service of the physical to the spiritual requires 
an act of submission to, to be given over to, you know, that, that paradigm way of thinking that what's spiritual and, and cerebral takes precedence over what's physical and immediate and pleasurable. And so that's what Asaph should have stepped into. And if had Asaph been the person to say, you know what, I'm willing to take some responsibility to make sure to use all the good of blessings for myself and for Yaakov, he would have had to submit to the direction and the guidance of Yaakov for sure. That's Virav Yaavot Sa'ir. In the end of the day, what ends up happening is that, you know, Esav does become actually under Yaakov's thumb. And even though it doesn't look that way sometimes today, we know that the way the rabbis explain it is that when Yaakov is really performing as Yaakov is supposed to perform, that then Esav and, and his descendants, when we say Yaakov and Esav now, now we're speaking about the future nations, the Jewish people, um, you know, and the descendants of Esav, which could be our, you know, the, the Roman Empire, which is the general um, rubric for the name of the exile, which we live in today, that whole, that whole dynamic is only possible, um, you know, that Yaakov should really be in charge in front and obviously and leading everything that's supposed to be when Yaakov is being who Yaakov is supposed to be. So that's the way the prophecy will end up ultimately. But the way it should have happened is that Esav would get the blessings. Esav would be in charge of the physical benefits of this world, but it would be in service in avoda to what Yaakov's main, you know, cerebral and spiritual paradigm of the world would be, and he would have to serve that. At the end of the day, Yaakov is actually required to take responsibility for both parts of it, and he does. And so Yaakov and Esav are really, unfortunately, not able to work out a partnership, despite their parents' best efforts to have them figure out how to work together well by loving them properly, by loving them as who they wanted to be as people, but they did not work out their partnership because ultimately Esav did not want to be that kind of good, that kind of servant to Yaakov and his role. So <clears throat> the bottom line answers to our questions are that Yitzchak and Rivka are definitely working together and that the reason that Yitzchak intends to give Esau the blessing is because that would have been an excellent way to move forward. He could have given Esau the blessings. Esau had been willing to be the proper partner that he could have been to Yaakov. Unfortunately, he was not. And so now we can conclude with the idea of thanksgiving. A person who really is in touch with doing meaningful things in the world and really sees all their blessings as an opportunity of becoming an edified person and doing good things for themselves and for their loved ones is a person who readily and e easily is not only happy with what he has, but actually thanks Hashem for the opportunity to become a higher level human being. Real thanksgiving is not thank you for the food I have, thank you for the pleasure I have. Real thanksgiving is thank you for the person Hashem that you've helped me to become. That's what real thanksgiving is. And that is very much the Yaakov Avinu mindset. And for such a person, yes, he often feels that he has exactly everything that he needs to have because he's using everything that he has to advance himself and to become a higher level person. And that's a, a very inspirational, thrilling feeling for a person to have.
And it's easy to give thanksgiving when a person has that as their way of you know, experiencing life. On the other hand, if what a person really appreciates is how much money they have, well, there could always be more money, right? If a person is appreciating how much you know, food they have, or even, even how many children they have, for example, uh, people could always want more. The Talmudic principle is a person who has 100 wants 200, a person who has 200 wants 400. And that's not a person of Thanksgiving. So I think it's important, even though Thanksgiving is not a Jewish holiday, um, it is a Jewish concept. And I think it's important to understand that when we say Ani in the morning, what we're talking about is that, God, you've given me my soul back and I can now live as an edified human being because I have a purified soul, which is what happens overnight. And that is a tremendous reason to thank Hashem because that's the greatest exhilaration that a person can have in life is to experience true development and true edification. Any questions or comments? Rabbi, I have a question. Sure. Oh, Russell. How are you, Mr. Never? Awesome. Yes, uh, Thanksgiving is said to be the all-American holiday. And most people will say that. That's the original American holiday. So also the theme is irresponsible children. Yes. Just putting it in the uh, simple sense. Uh, peshat, is that the term? Peshat? Shot, yes. Yeah. So... Uh, Yitzhak uh, looks at uh, Esav and he says, uh, well, he's a man's man. He's, he's a hunter. He's a football hero. He's going to be have a great drive to the top. And the other son, he just sits around and reads books. So that's maybe a reason. And the other thing that I had to say was about the uh, soup. What's he saying when he says, uh, he responds, I'd like a little soup. And he says, well, give me your birth, sell me your birthright. So maybe there were years of service and he just kept saying to him, hey, you, get me this, get me that, get me this, get me that. So finally, after years of that, he said, okay, you want me to keep serving you? Sell me your birthright. That's what I have to say. So, no, those are good points. Um, I, I like your second point a lot because I think you're right. We don't have to assume that this was kind of a one-time event in their lives. And boy, sell me your right. Get me right. that. You're saying it was a culmination of interactions. Right. That's a, that's a, that's a very nice point. I appreciate I it. Thank know. you. Yeah. Thank okay. you. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for joining. Akiva, I have a quick comment. Yeah, please. Yeah. Um, so this whole concept of Thanksgiving and Asaph saying Yeshli um, Rov and, and Yaakov saying Yeshli Akol, I have everything. It relates, I think, a lot to the, the concept in positive psychology called abundance versus scarcity. It's like a primary concept of uh, positive psychology that people are oriented towards abundance, tend to be robust, healthy. Um, they feel confident in themselves and they have a greater spiritual connection. People who operate with scarcity tend to be neurotic, anxious, worried, and not connected spiritually. And then what makes sense to me is that, that if, uh, if we can see Yaakov as being Yeshua called that that's abundance, and Yeshua Rav, I have a lot, but doesn't mean I have everything, that's scarcity. It would make sense that the, the legacy of leadership would go to Yaakov, because 
if, in order to be able to have that spiritual connection, you have to have a sense of abundance related to the fact that God has given me everything that I need. If you don't have that spiritual connection, you never have enough. It's never so, enough. So, yeah, you're totally, totally on target, totally right. Um, I agree with you 100%. Uh, that's, that's definitely a great way of framing it. Um, I would just add to that, I've always been disturbed by the notion of the abundance mentality if it's actually a limited pie. No, it's, it's all, it's like, it's like an optical illusion. Like how is there an abundance mentality if the globe and its resources are limited? Like, in other words, for a philosopher, how do you answer the question? But wait a second, is there really an abundant amount? Isn't there only a certain amount of pieces in the pie? You know what I'm saying? Well, I know because I think ab abundance is, is a matter of perception. What I feel is enough, maybe not enough for the next person. So okay, if, so, if so, I believe so, that I'm, I have what I'm destined to have, then, right. then it's a, it is, it is a, an accurate. Yeah, I, I think that, that it, that helps what you're saying helps, but my own personal answer to the question is when there's God, there is an infinite amount. The problem is when there's no God, right? Cause when there's God, that's the point, be, that's the point. Right. So if, no, there, I know, if I know there's no God, right. then, then Asaph can't be the spiritual no, right. leader I, I, because that's he's not connected. Right. So you're 100% right. All I'm saying is, but it's also the answer to why there's always an infinite amount. I hear that. Right. It, it, it's, it's, it's both things is, is what I'm trying to say. And, and it, it really is true. Like, I, I like to point out that, you know, Israel has, you know, no oil, but it has tons of natural gas that was magically discovered, you know, uh, you, know, what is it, you know, 20 years ago and, and, you know, off the coast. The point is, is that with new technology and new ways of thinking and new developments in the world, there is really an infinite amount that God allows us because the wisdom of God is infinite. And even in the, so to speak, limited amounts of the universe that we see in front of us, there really is an infinite universe. So therefore it really is infinite. That's all I'm saying. But, but I, I totally agree with you. Thank you. Rabbi, just briefly on uh, Dr. Goldwasser's comment on, on, on perception. It's very interesting because in this case, uh, Asaph is coming in with a view of what more is he going to get. He's just been getting all these gifts and he's going in like he's going to conquer the rest of what he missed out previously. And Yaakov is coming in worried for his life where I'm two camps. Uh, have, ha, 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 I've been the, the I've benefited from so much goodness. Am I still going to get more? So the truth is a person who's a, in a sense, he, he's just grateful for what he has and afraid of losing what he has, whereas where, where Asaph is in acquisition mode. And I, I think, uh, so I don't know to what extent that may be a factor. The other thing is also that when somebody says I have enough, it, they're defining enough, is that what's enough for me is what Hashem gives me. So, so I, I think that any person who, who is happy with his lot accepts that that's what's right for them at that moment, and they don't want more because that's second guessing what where Hashem put them. So, those are just my my my, my two thoughts on that uh, particular. Yeah, yeah, it's similar to, to what Dr. Wallace was saying. Yeah. Yes, Rabbi Chiel. Yes, and then um, Joseph. You're you're revealing um, an answer that I had uh, a question, a, a query that. If you look at the bracha that Yitzchak gave Yaakov, he said, I, he told Asaph, I made all of his brothers uh, slaves to him. And yeah. so based on what you were saying, um, I would venture to believe that the bracha came 
you know, it was uh, divinely inspired, but that wouldn't have necessarily been the bracha he would have given to Esau. Mm. It's only because it was Yitzchak and because because Yaakov knows how to handle everything, so serving Yaakov would be the best thing for Esau, but the other way around, he would have definitely not made uh, Yaakov a servant to Esau, per se. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And if you look at the bracha that he does give to Esav, he doesn't give him any dominion at all, except, you know, even on when Esav has it good, it's just he has his own, you know, good physical existence, not well, that, as, as a ruler over ever, anyone. Yeah, but that's the question would be anyway, you have to, first of all, figure out before you even get there is the, the, the dialogue between Yitzchak and, and Esav. I don't have a bracha. Yeah. I do have a yeah. bracha. I don't. Yeah, I do. yeah like, that's true. Yeah, so yeah. then you know, then you figure out. But the point being is that you, you're based on what you're saying. It's clear that the bracha would not have been the same if he would have given it to. Him. Yeah, I like that. I like that very much. Thank you. Yes. Well, based on what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. No, that's great. Thank you. Awesome, Joseph. So I like you to dig on. First of all, a wonderful shiur like the one on Wednesday. I think it's like you talk specifically to me, so thank you. Uh, but as a parent, I think you leave us off the hook a little bit too easy. Uh, up to uh, what point we are responsible for the of our children? Only up to Perfect. the bottom. I just want to hear it again. To what point are we responsible for the, the action on, or the lifestyle of our children? Up to what point? So I want to try to answer this question as directly as I can. The short answer is almost not at all. Um, the longer part of that answer, meaning we're almost not responsible at all, because every person does have choice and needs to use their choice. But I would say if we have not traumatized our children, we've done a very good job. If we've loved them, we've done an even better job. And pretty much the most that we can do especially if our love for them is not conditional and it's not based on a manipulation game, which is, not, which is really the case by Yitzchak and Rivka. They're not manipulating anything because you would think if, if, if Yitzchak wanted to manipulate Esav, he would do what most of us do. Oh yeah, you know, thank you for the meat. But that question that you asked me in learning, wow, what a fantastic question that was. It doesn't say anything about Yitzchak validating Esau's lumbus, his, you know, his, his, his way of thinking. You know, it's about what Esau wanted. And, and apparently that's a fantastic job. And, and sadly, very sadly, that doesn't give us the results that we always want. But, you know, that's what free choice is. And the funny thing is, like, we know this so well because when we were children, we were desperate for that free choice. The last thing we wanted is for our parents to tell us who to be and how to be and what to be. But somehow when we're parents, as good parents, we think that's what we're supposed to do with our children. No, no. The, the, the best we can do is help our children understand their own greatness, but it has to be with their understanding of it, not with us telling them what it is. You know, and let me, let me explain to you what you're wrong about yourself. You know, you could try to evoke it, but I don't think you can do um, more than that. I don't think so. And we really don't have much responsibility. 
Mm. But, you know, the flip side, and, and women hate this answer most of the time, in my experience, from the women that I spoke to. And they usually say to me, Rabbi, don't you have a better answer for how to help your children? 